take the opportunity to join Tony in thanking you for your presence tonight. We truly appreciate everyone who is here, including those who are visiting. We want you to know that you are an encouragement to us, and we're hopeful that our study tonight will be beneficial, and we're hopeful that our worship tonight has been uplifting, and that we have given the glory and honor to God, and so we thank you. This week, we are looking at what we're calling hallmarks of the church. And that term hallmark, as we have explained, is a word that describes something that is authentic. And so if something is genuine, if it is real, it might be given a stamp of authenticity, which we could call a hallmark. That term was used primarily with precious metals like gold or silver or platinum. But the church that we read about in the New Testament also has qualities, characteristics. We might call them hallmarks that help us to identify it, that help us to appreciate it. So that when we're talking with our friends, when we're talking with our neighbors, when we're talking with our relatives... We can talk to them about what the New Testament church is all about. And so we started this study by looking at the identity of the church. What is the church? And we noted that there are several phrases that are found in Scripture that are used to describe it. The church is, as Paul told Timothy, the house of God. It has a job. It's to stand firm, the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the flock of God. And so our task as God's children is to follow, to submit to His will. It's the spokesman for God. And so we have the responsibility of speaking forth the gospel to those who are around us, not keeping the message of Jesus to ourselves, but sharing that message. It's the family of God. And so we're concerned when our brothers and sisters struggle and face difficulties. It is the body of Christ. And so all of us have the responsibility to use our abilities and talents... And it is the bride of Christ, which symbolizes purity that should characterize the church. We've talked about conduct. What should this church do? What should it be like? And Paul had that in mind when he wrote 1 Timothy. And he told Timothy, this is how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We talked about unity. We're supposed to be people who are united as Jesus was with His Father. We can do that by preaching Christ. We can do that by living Christ. We can do that by imitating Christ. We can do that by rejoicing in Christ, not only when things are good, but when we're facing difficulties in this life. We talked last evening about the hallmark of faith. Not merely granting assent to a truth, but recognizing that biblical faith requires three things. God speaks, man hears, man does. And so when God spoke and told Noah, you build yourself an ark of gopher wood, Noah heard what God said, and he did it. And when God told Abraham, you take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and you offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, God spoke and Abraham heard and Abraham did. And when God told Joshua, 
you should march around the city one time a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. And Joshua and the Israelites heard what God said and they did it. Those individuals acted by faith. Tonight as we continue our series, we're going to talk about the important hallmark of salvation. Salvation. Primarily the salvation of those who compose the church. Now you are well aware that there are a number of important questions, significant questions that are asked throughout Scripture. The serpent, for example, asked Eve in the Garden of Eden, Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That was an important question, wasn't it? There are others. Cain asked God, Am I my brother's keeper? Pharaoh asked Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? Naaman's servants asked that Syrian general, If the prophet had bid you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Jesus asked His apostles, Who do you say that I am? And Pontius Pilate asked, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Those are all important questions. All of them have a significant role that they play in the course of Scripture as it is recorded and given to us. But let me suggest to you tonight that there is one question that is more important than any other, at least with regard to our standing spiritually. It's a question that is raised more than one time in the New Testament, but particularly in a special form in Acts the 16th chapter. You remember the story. Paul and Silas had been placed in the prison in Philippi. An earthquake occurred, opening the doors of the prison cells, and yet the prisoners did not flee. The individual who was given the charge over their lives was about to take his own until he realized that no one had fled. And astonished, he came to Paul and Silas. And he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? I would suggest to you tonight that this question, the question that was asked by the jailer, is a question that all of us should be very interested in. It is a question that we ought to be concerned about. What must I do to be saved? And it is a question that the New Testament answers. And so we're going to spend a few moments this evening thinking about this significant question. And we'll show as we conclude our lesson how this pertains to the church. But first, why is this question important? Let me give you just a simple background in response. This question is an important question because all of us are affected by it. This is a question that is significant because we all need salvation and we realize that we need salvation because 
Paul tells the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, even if you didn't have Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, there are a couple of things that I think you can know. I think you can know that our God that we serve is perfect. And I also think that you can know very clearly that you are not. And so when we come to recognize the perfection of God and we come to see how vastly short we fall below His perfection, we realize that we do indeed sin and that we do indeed need salvation. And we come to understand that it is our sins that separate us from God. And that's made very clear both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Isaiah 59 and verse 1, the text says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, He said very simply, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Why is this question, what must I do to be saved, such an important one? Because all of us are affected by the problem of sin, and as a result of that, all of us are affected by the answer to this question. The answer does indeed pertain to us in eternity. You see, we will all die if the judgment does not first come. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, and we will all spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so we have a passage like John chapter 12 and verse 48. Jesus' words, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. I understand that there are some subjects that perhaps interest you more than others. You have certain things that you like. Hobbies, things that you appreciate. But there are some things that transcend all of our personal interests because they are that important. The question, what must I do to be saved, is such a question. It has to do with your eternal destiny. And if you are as honest as I think you are, And if your desire more than anything else is to please the God of heaven and to serve the God of heaven and to be obedient to the God of heaven, then you must be interested in how the Bible answers this question. What must I do to be saved? Now with that being said, I think the first thing that we have to do in seeking to answer the question is to see if there are other occasions in Scripture besides Acts, the 16th chapter, when this question or an equivalent to it is asked. And there are other instances in the New Testament economy. One of those is found in Acts, the second chapter. I want you to open your Bibles with me there. Acts chapter 2.
you're familiar with Acts, the second chapter, you know that the apostles had heeded the words of Christ. He had told them to stay in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high, and that the Holy Spirit did indeed come upon the apostles. They began to speak with new tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. And the individuals who were gathered in Jerusalem from various parts of the world to honor the Jewish festival of Pentecost heard those men speak in their own languages. It was an event that they could not deny. It was an event that was absolutely certain. Some mocked. These men are drunk. Peter dismissed that with the wave of a hand. They're not drunk since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 and concluding with verse 21. And just as an aside, I want you to notice what verse 21 says. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now before we go any further, I'd like to ask you a question. I want you to be as thoughtful about this question. I want you to be as sincere about this question as you possibly can be. Did the people who were in the audience on this occasion hear the Apostle Peter when he said, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Did they hear him? This is not a trick question, folks. Again, this means yes. Did those folks hear Peter when he said, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? They heard him. Now I want you to remind yourself of that in just a moment. After quoting from Joel, Peter goes on to make the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That these individuals have crucified the Messiah that they should have been honoring, that they should have been recognizing. And he tells them very simply, you could have known he was the Christ, number one, because of the miracles or the signs that he performed. God attested him by miracles and signs. Verse 22, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. If people wanted to reject the idea that Jesus was the Christ, Peter could say you could have known who he was based upon the signs that he performed. But he doesn't just mention the miracles. He continues. He quotes from David. Verse 25, he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken, and therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made me known the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. And after quoting from the psalmist, Peter goes on to say, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us until this day. Now I want you to notice what Peter's done. His first argument, that is, to show these individuals that they could know that Jesus is the Christ, is that you can know who he is by the miracles that he worked. His second argument is this. You can know that he is who he claimed to be because his tomb is empty. And you might stop and you might say, now hold on just a second, where does it say his tomb is empty? It says that through the implication of quoting from David. 
Look again, if you will, at verse 27. These are the words of the psalmist. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And after quoting from the prophecy of David in the Psalms, Peter goes on to note that David is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us until this day. Those Jews knew where the tomb of great King David was. They could check and find it. They could see whether his body was there, whether the bones were there, even after all of those years. And yet they also knew where the tomb of Jesus was. And they could go and they could check. And they would notice that the tomb of Jesus was empty. David spoke in prophecy about the Christ. They could have known that Jesus was the Christ by the signs he performed, by the fact that Jesus' tomb is empty, and on the basis of the credible witnesses who stood before them. So Peter continued in verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. There are two general ways in which you learn things. One of the most obvious ways is through experience. By you physically experiencing things, you come to know them. You come to understand them. Generally, they're things that perhaps you can measure with your physical senses. We call them empirical things. You can touch them, you can taste them, you can smell them, you can hear them. But there are some things that you learn, not because you have experienced it, but because someone you love and trust has told you. I've asked this question when I've talked about this subject many times. How many of you have ever placed your hand on a hot stove oven? You done that? Raise your hand. How many of you have never placed your hand on a hot stove oven? Several of you have not. I guarantee you, if I ask you all who have never touched the hot... By the way, I said that very same question once in Ohio. Nobody knew what a hot stove I was. I'm glad you do. If you've never placed your hand on the hot stove, I can guarantee you that at least somebody in this room will tell me, if I ask you, why not? What you'll tell me is, because my mother told me not to. Now the reason you'll say that is because she had love for you. She cared for you. She didn't want you to touch the hot stove and burn your hand. And let me assure you that your knowledge of the hot stove doesn't have to be based upon you placing your hand upon it. It can also be based upon the credible testimony of somebody who loves you and cares for you. And so we come to learn certain things, not just on the basis of our own experiences, but upon the testimony of those who are credible. And incidentally, what you know about Jesus does not come from your own personal experience. It comes from the basis of credible testimony. Our entire religious system is based upon credible testimony. The inspiration of the Word of God. And so Peter is using that as a basis for those who are present to know that Jesus is the Christ. You can know He is the Son of God because of the signs that He works, because His tomb is empty, and because we are witnesses of this. And so, Peter goes on. He concludes his sermon in verse 36. And he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
And verse 37 says, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and they cried out, Lord, save us. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Now let's go back to the question I asked you a few moments ago. Weren't these people in the audience when Peter said aloud, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did these people hear Peter say that or didn't they? They heard him, didn't they? And yet, when Peter has convicted them of being the very ones who were guilty of crucifying the Son of God, and he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ, and those words would have hurt an honest Jew. An individual who knew that they ought to be looking for the Messiah rather than crucifying Him when they were told you've crucified the very one you should have been honoring and they've just heard Peter say, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why didn't they stop at that very moment and cry out, Lord, save us? You want to know why? Because within the context of even hearing those words, they understood calling on the name of the Lord means more than audibly crying out, Lord save us. And so they ask our question in various forms. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we? You know what they're asking? They're asking the same question the jailer asked in Acts chapter 16. They're asking, what must we do to be saved? And Peter responds, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They ask the question, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Example number two. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. In Acts the ninth chapter... We read about the story of Saul of Tarsus, an individual who is introduced to us earlier in the book of Acts, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to his death. This individual obviously is very zealous to the point that he's willing to go to a different place in hopes of persecuting Christians and bringing them back to the high priest for what he believes to be proper justice. But as he is journeying along the way toward Damascus, something very remarkable happens. Verse 3, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from the heavens and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? There's our question, incidentally. It's the same question that the people in Acts, the second chapter, ask. Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's the same question that the Philippian jailer asks in Acts, the 16th chapter. 
What must I do to be saved? Paul is asking Jesus, sir, what would you have me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. He goes into the city of Damascus. He is there. He is praying. He is fasting. And the Lord calls upon a disciple who lived in that city. A man named Ananias, and he told him about Saul of Tarsus. He gave him instructions. You're going to go and you're going to teach this man, for he's a chosen vessel of mine. I'm going to use him to bring good And you're going to be the one who's going to facilitate this. And you can imagine Ananias and the reaction that he had. It might be very similar to a reaction that you or I might have. Uh, Lord, hold on just a second. I've heard many things about this man. Now, we might get on to Ananias for having that reaction, but let's remember this fact at least. Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, wasn't he? And Ananias was a Christian who happened to live in Damascus. And so you're telling me that I'm supposed to go and to teach and to baptize this individual that was actually coming here to seek my life? And the Lord said, you go. And he went. And when Saul was recounting this event later on in the book of Acts, in Acts the 22nd chapter, This is how he remembered the conversation taking place. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Ananias speaking to Saul. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. And wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Saul asks the question... What would you have me to do? Ananias answers, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So you've got the folks in Acts chapter 2 who asked this question to Peter. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've got Saul who asked the question And he is told by Ananias, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And then you have the Philippian jailer. Open your Bibles to Acts the 16th chapter. Paul and Silas had been placed in prison for actually doing a good thing. A slave girl who had been possessed by a demon who was being used to gain money for her masters was helped by them. And instead of showing appreciation, those individuals cast Paul and Silas in prison. They were beaten. They were placed in stocks in the most secure area of the jail. And yet, even at that very late hour, God was concerned And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. 
And he called for a light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now let's stop for just a moment and think about the three times that we've already seen this question being asked. In Acts chapter 2, the question is asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the response, unequivocally, is you need to repent. You need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. In Acts the ninth chapter, the question is asked, what would you have me to do? And the response is, why are you waiting? You need to arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away. Here in Acts the 16th chapter, the question is asked, What shall I do to be saved? And the answer that is given is, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But the story of the Philippian jailer does not end there. As we continue on in the passage, the Bible says, So, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. They taught him. In verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. We could stop and spend time thinking about the question of why there was an urgency for him to be baptized even at that late hour past midnight. But what's amazing to me about this text is what's stated in verse 34. The passage says, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced. Watch this now. Having believed in God with all his household. That phrase, believed in God, in this passage is used as a summary. Not only for the initial step, but to include all that the jailer did. Well, that being said, there are, I suppose, some questions that people might have about this. If this is a question that affects all of us, and if this is a question that we all need to be concerned with, and if this is a question that is genuinely asked in the New Testament, what we might want to know is, why do we find in Acts the second chapter the people saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? And being told in response, you need to repent and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And then why in Acts the ninth chapter, when Saul of Tarsus asks essentially the same thing, is he told simply, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins? And why in Acts the 16th chapter, when the Philippian jailer clearly asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is he told, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you have three different things? Repent and be baptized, be baptized and believe, told to individuals in response to this very significant, this very important question. Well, while you're thinking about that, let me ask you a question. I grew up, after we moved here, near Baxter, Tennessee. And if we were going to go to Nashville from Baxter, there is one really easy way to go. We'd go down Interstate 40. Now, let's suppose that I decided one day that I was going to go to Nashville. And from Baxter, Tennessee, right when I got on Interstate 40, I happened to ask the question, how far is it to Nashville? 
If someone knew what they were talking about, they would say in response to me, it is 80 miles. 80 miles to Nashville. Well, let's suppose I said, all right, and I drove on down the interstate a ways, and I came to Carthage. And I said, I want to know, how far is it to Nashville? And someone who knows what they're talking about would say, well, it's about 50 miles. And I said, all right, and I keep on going down Interstate 40. I haven't left the same road the whole time. And I ask when I get to Lebanon, Tennessee, how far is it to Nashville? And someone says, well, you're about 35 miles away. Now, I want you to notice, I've been on the same road the whole time, haven't I? And I've asked the same question every single time. I've only said, how far is it to Nashville? And I've been on Interstate 40, and I've asked that question, and yet every single time that I've asked the question, I've been given a different answer. The first time I asked the question, somebody said, it's 80 miles. The second time I asked the question, somebody said, it's 50 miles. The third time I asked the question, somebody said, it's 35 miles. Now, I've asked the same question, I've been on the same road, and yet I've gotten different answers. And we want to know, how is it possible that you can ask the same question and be on the same road and get different answers? And the answer to that is this. Obviously, you're in a different spot. You're on the same road, you're asking the same question, but you are in a different position. Now, let's go back to the three examples. Why were these people in Jerusalem on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Because they sincerely believed in the law of Moses and they sought to do the will of God. And as Peter preached to these individuals on that occasion, he convicted them that they had crucified the Christ, the Son of God. And so when they asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? He didn't have to say to them, you need to believe. They did. They were cut to the heart. They believed. But they needed to be told what was next. You need to repent. You need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. When Saul of Tarsus asks that question, and he's told by the Lord, you go into the city and it will be told you what to do, he goes into that city and he is fasting and praying. Those are the signs of a penitent man. This is not an individual who did not believe in the Lord. He's talked to him. You didn't have to try to convince him that the Lord was real. He believed. You didn't have to tell him he needed to repent. He was penitent. So what does Ananias say in response? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And then we have the curious case of the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Why does Paul say that? To answer that question, you have to know a little bit of history. When you study the book of Acts, you find that Paul has certain characteristics. One of the things that he does when he goes to a new city immediately is to seek to find the synagogue. Those are religious people. He's going to try to go to them. He's going to try to teach them. But you know what's interesting? When he came to Philippi in Acts, the 16th chapter, he looked for the synagogue, but he did not find one. You know what that tells us? It tells us that Philippi was not a Jewish city. It was a Gentile city. It was actually a place where Roman soldiers went to retire. 
The people who lived in Philippi were not from a Jewish background. They were from a Gentile background. They didn't have the background in the law of Moses. They weren't even necessarily what the book of Acts might call God-fearers. These are individuals who have to start from square one. And so when the jailer comes to Saul and, and or Paul and Silas and he asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's what Paul does. He tells the jailer, here's where you've got to start. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that process included that jailer taking Paul and Silas that same hour and washing their stripes, which, by the way, is an act of penitence. And that process included the jailer and his household being baptized that very same night. Notice the urgency. And all of that is summarized by the Bible declaring how he had believed on the Lord. It's very interesting. You can ask the same question on the same road and be told different answers. Not because the answer is different, but because you're in a different place. When Scripture answers individuals, it answers them where they are. If you needed to believe, you were told you need to believe. If you needed to repent, you were told you need to repent. If you needed to be baptized, you're told you need to be baptized. And so we have this very important question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we see it on Pentecost, and we see it on the road to Damascus, and we see it in the prison at Philippi. But here's what we don't see. How does the Bible answer the question? It doesn't say, do whatever you want. It doesn't say that. Now, we live in a world in which individuals like to have their freedom, their individuality. We live in a world where truth is challenged on a daily basis, where people try to make truth simply relative to their own situation and not dependent upon anyone else. But truth from Scripture is not subjective. It is objective. It is the standard could illustrate it this way. An objective truth would be something like this Bible. It doesn't change. A subjective truth would be something that's merely pertaining to me. It could change based on my situation. But when Scripture tells us what to do, the objective truth still stands. My question for us is this. Am I willing to do what that truth teaches? How does the Bible answer this question? It doesn't say... Do whatever you want to do. How does the Bible answer this question? It doesn't say follow the traditions of men. There are a variety of traditions that have been established throughout the ages. Whether those traditions have some root in some biblical statement or not is irrelevant. There are some who might argue on the basis of Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. The Bible says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, the Bible does say it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, doesn't it? But the very first time that passage was spoken to an audience who had the capacity to hear and understand in the New Testament period after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the audience who heard that statement being made did not cry out when they were cut to the heart, Lord, save us. They instead said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
and they were told. The Bible doesn't tell you, do whatever you want. It doesn't tell you, follow the traditions or the doctrines of men. But it does say we're saved by grace through faith. It does say that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And that our Savior makes it possible because of the wonderful grace of God for us to be obedient. To yield our lives to God's plan. Sometimes people object to the plan of salvation which includes being baptized for the remission of their sins because they say, you're telling me that's something that I have to do. I believe that I'm saved by grace. That's something that God does. You know what's interesting to me? Baptism is actually the only component in the plan of salvation that is passive. Did you know that? You must, on your own, believe. No one can believe for you. You must, of your own volition, of your own will, repent. No one can do that for you. You must, on your own, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but you do not baptize yourself. You are baptized. You know what that means? You are placing your hands completely in submission to the plan of God. And so rather than baptism being an action whereby you are seeking to earn your salvation, it is the ultimate example of your willing to yield your life to God's plan. Not doing what you want to do. Doing what God says to do. So we ask this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we seek very humbly to find the biblical answer. And as we study Scripture, we find that the Bible doesn't say, do whatever you want. And it doesn't say, follow the traditions of men. But it does say we're saved by grace through faith. And it does say we're saved by Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul says at the end of that verse that he, Jesus, is the Savior of the body. Now, friend, if you didn't know anything else about Scripture and you're honest and you read Ephesians 5 and verse 23 and that passage says He's the Savior of the body, if I knew nothing else, here's what I'd know. Whatever that body is that He's the Savior of, I've got to be a part of that. If Jesus is the Savior of the body, and you need salvation, then you need to be a part of that body. And so we ask this question that's very important. What must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question continues to be based upon where you stand along the road. Perhaps you need to be told to begin by believing that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. 
Perhaps you need to be told that you need to repent of your sin, that you can't keep living for the world, that you've got to let go of the world so that you can serve God. Perhaps you need to be told to have the courage to confess Jesus before others so that He will confess you before His Father who is in heaven. Or perhaps you need to be encouraged to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. And it might be very similar to the case of Saul of Tarsus where someone simply needs to say to you, why are you waiting? What's holding you back? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's not possible for us to talk about hallmarks of the church without talking about gospel obedience. I'm thankful that my Lord came to the earth to die. I know that you are too. And I'm thankful that we have examples frozen in time of individuals who were sincere, who wanted to do what God would have them to do. What a joy for us to have the opportunity to do the same. I don't know about your life, whether you have yielded your will to the will of God. But I know tonight you have the opportunity if you have not done so. And I know that if you haven't been living like you should, you can also make your life right in the sight of God. If you need to respond to our Lord's invitation, don't delay. Come right now, together we stand and sing.